Hey, Media People podcast listeners, if you enjoy the podcast, then you're going to love our newsletter, appropriately named the Media People Newsletter. Delivered right to your inbox, each edition is a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or go to mediapeople.beehive.com. That's B-E-E-H-I-I-V. Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts, including youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. You might know David Cairns as the co-founder of Cairns O'Neill, but the agency he started with Sherry O'Neill in 2012 is just one of the many companies he's had a hand in founding. In fact, some of those agencies became the entry points for international holding companies looking to enter the Canadian market. For example, David's first agency, David Cairns & Company, was acquired by Aegis and rebranded Karat. But if you look back at David's passions and education, you would have thought a role in the creative services would have been forthcoming. A lifelong artist with degrees in visual arts and education, David worked for two years as an art teacher in rural Prince Edward Island. David returned to Toronto and took a job as a media estimator with Ogilvy & Mather, and it was from there that his media career took off. David Cairns stops by to chat about growing up in Toronto, his passion for painting, working the late shift as a taxi driver, his career in media, and why every entrepreneur should have an exit strategy. We're an independent uh, Canadian media agency um, owned by Sherry O'Neill, myself, and Devin McDonald, and we were... Uh, founded in uh, January 2012, so we're 12 or 13 years old now. And what a media agency does and what we do is uh, we design and execute media strategies for clients. Um, in the old days, it was always about television and radio and newspaper and magazine. Um, but um, more and more, it's about the digital world. And um, we use um, both syndicated and proprietary data and tools, modeling tools, etc. We're about 50 staff now, so uh, we've grown nicely. We work directly with uh, advertising clients, closely with creative agencies, and obviously uh, our uh, our media vendor partners. Well, as for my role, I'm now, I have the title executive chair. I stepped back uh, in April of 2022. Um, I hate to use the word retirement because I'm still a shareholder in the company and still involved with the uh, with the financial performance of the company and uh, and larger macro issues. But uh, so that's why my title is executive chair. So, um, you know, involved in the board and longer term corporate direction. David, thank you so much for stopping by today. As always, we go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Uh, Toronto. I uh, was born in Toronto in uh, 1955 and. Uh, uh, my parents were from Toronto as well. They were uh, they were the children of uh, Scottish, Irish, and English uh, immigrants. So I was born in '55 and uh, lived, I guess, the first 24 years of my life in Toronto. What was life like growing up in Toronto? Well, it was um, it was a, a much different place than it is for now, for sure. It was a very uh, waspish, uh, almost Victorian city it was a smaller city uh, at that time the the subway uh, the young subway uh, only went until Eglinton um, I was uh, my house 
was uh, at Mount Pleasant and Lawrence in Toronto. And so, you know, if you wanted to go downtown, you went out, you waited for the bus, which would take you to Edmonton Station, and then you'd get on the train and go downtown. Um, it was a it was a great place, a great time to grow up. Lots of kids, obviously, we were part of the, the boom. Um, so, you know, schools uh, had, you know, classes of 30, 31, 32 kids. Um, but it was uh, it was a quieter place. You know, there was no Sunday shopping. Um, you know, if you wanted to get a drink on Sunday, you had to order food with it. There weren't a lot of restaurants. There wasn't an awful lot of light, uh, nightlife, um, with the exception of, you know, um, bars on Young Street. Um, there wasn't an awful lot more than that. Um, and what I remember is, uh, you know, you could go out the front door. If you were a kid, five, six, seven years old, you went out the front door and you were gone for hours. Like, they didn't necessarily know where you were. You know, you might be at the park a couple of blocks away, or you might be many blocks away. Um, one of the one of my memories from uh, one of my great memories from growing up is um, uh, a friend of mine and I uh, set up a stand in front of my house and sold all our comic books. You know, I might have been I don't know seven, six or seven years old, and we sold our comic books and we made you know about two dollars and fifty nine cents or something, and we took that money. And the two of us uh, walked up Young Street about a kilometer, um, stopping in at various candy stores and variety stores all the way up. I mean, we were a long way up the up Young Street, you know, crossing over uh, from one side of the street to the other, you know, get some pixie sticks here and some liquor there and some black balls here, et cetera. And, and then you arrive home, you know, after like, you know, three or four or five hours gone. Um, a very different place than uh, I think a lot of kids would experience now. David, I'm a massive comic book collector, not as much as I was yeah. in, my, in my younger years. And all I can think uh -huh. about when you said that was, what kind of classics did you sell off for candy? <laughs> oh, like, what man, specific no, issues like, that could be priceless right now? Oh, of course. Sure. Well, you know, at that time, of course, it was you know, a lot of Superman and Batman and uh, the Flash. And uh, also, uh, I remember liking... Um, Kid Colt outlaw and the two gun kid and those kinds of things. But yeah, but I don't think they would have been in any kind of, uh, you know, collectible shape. You know, they were not being pristine condition. You stayed at home until you were 21 and you decided to move out and you stayed in Toronto. What was it about 21 where you said, you know what, I've got to leave the nest? I'm not sure what it was about that specific age, it, it, except that I was changing, I was maturing, I was evolving. And I I don't remember any discussion or pressure in my family about moving out. I just kind of felt it's what I should do. It was time to grow up. And I um, uh, I had gone to university for two years and was going to take a year off. And at the end of that year, I'd made a little bit of money, not a lot, and enough to pay the rent for the next several months. And uh, um just was really excited about you know finding a place to live and I don't remember my parents trying to talk me out of it it just uh, seemed like the right thing to do at the time so I um I rented a bachelor apartment on Carlton Street about a block east of uh, what was then Maple Leaf Gardens I think it's what is it the Madame Center now I think for 150 bucks a month and it was a bachelor apartment and um at the at, at the end of the year they were going to raise my rent to 162.50, so I moved because 
husband's extra $12.50 a month uh, was more than I could afford. And I found a place, fortunately, a couple blocks away on Granby Street um, for 140 a month. So I was saving a lot of money by moving there. And I lived there for the next two years while I went back to school. Let's talk about your interest in hobbies. You, you were very big mm-hmm. into sports, but something that caught my eye, parallel between you and me, you read a lot. And you seem to want to read biographies, like biographies, you've got Thomas Edison, the Wright brothers, Kit Carson. So what was it about biographies and what was it about the ones that you've highlighted here, these individuals? Well, you know, I remember um, reading those books when I was uh, still in elementary school before junior high. So it would have been going to grades four and six. I skipped over five, um, accelerated as they they would have said then. Um, But I guess... They were a lot of the books that the school library had. And I, you know, I still love facts. I love nonfiction. I read much more nonfiction than I do fiction. Um, And which is why I love Wikipedia so much, because anything I want to know, I can I can find there. But I agree with you there, sir. I'm big into Wikipedia. Yeah. So I was just exposed to all these stories, largely about Americans, Um, you know, the young, you know, uh, Thomas Edison and. Yeah, I read, I read the, uh, I read the biography of um, Eli Whitney, who invented the cotton gin. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was probably the only ten-year-old in North America reading about Eli Whitney, um, and uh, and I just really liked facts, and I still, you know, I still, uh, I know probably much more trivia than most people I know. I don't necessarily know how things work. I'm not scientific. I can't fix anything. I I couldn't do any plumbing or electrical or anything, but I can tell you stories about people who were plumbers or who were electricians or scientists or people who discovered uh, cures to various diseases. I always found that kind of fascinating. So it's kind of interesting to me that the things that you latch onto when you're very, very young, uh, a lot of those things really stay with you. You know, that idea that you're, you're kind of formed in the first few years, your values and your, you know, the things you like and the things you don't like, they, they really stay with you. So that's one of the reasons I, I, I'm interested in this, you know, what we're talking about here, because I've never really taken the time to think about um, those, um, the, those, those elements of my early, early life that had such an impact on me. We're basically writing your Wikipedia page right here. Yeah, right, exactly. At this time, too, you also discovered visual arts. So how did you get into drawing and painting? Well, I always liked it. And um, I, I always, I think, was the type of kid who would be trying to think about other ways of doing things, you know, that there's a creative element to that, that you, you're given an assignment, but how can you twist it? How can you kind of color outside the lines? And I used to love doing projects in school because it was, you know, what those projects we used to do on Bristol board, you get a big sheet of Bristol board and you could, you know, do maps and, you know, various things. I really liked that because I could add images to those. Um, but I used to do drawings of, um, you know, uh, comic book, uh, um, you know, figures like, uh, you know, the Wizard of Id and, you know, the Flintstones and, you know, peanuts and those things. I would actually draw those things out. Not, I wasn't, I didn't create any new comics, but I was just 
just drawing the figures, and I like doing that. Um, and I guess maybe by the time I was into junior high, I was, that's one thing that people knew about me was that I could really draw well, um, that I was, you know, artistically, you know, talented. Um, so that was at a fairly early age. Um, but, you know, I, I, um, I, I guess around the age of 15 or so, I started getting a little bit more serious about original artwork. And I, um, I had a, a dark room in my parents' basement, which was an unfinished basement as all houses or most houses were then. And I um, had a 35 millimeter camera and I uh, would take the bus downtown and wander around the streets and take pictures of old buildings. And uh, like, you know, the old city hall and the old bank building that became the Hockey Hall of Fame um, at, uh, what is that? I guess that's Young and, and Front. I'd, and then I would, um, I, I'd have the film developed and I would print those pictures and then I would do pen and ink drawings from them. And I was doing that, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. Um, and uh, both pen and ink and also, you know, just uh, black felt tip marker drawings and uh, still have a few of them in my basement somewhere. And a couple of them ended up in, you know, high school yearbooks and those kinds of things. And then, of course, and then I, I, I do remember, you know, right now in, in Toronto, there's a, every summer there's the Toronto Outdoor Art Fair. And I have a, a, a distant memory of being in that and I don't think it was called the Toronto Outdoor Art Fair then, but it was at Nathan Phillips Square at City Hall. And I remember having a stand there um, around 1970, 1971 or so. And I have no idea how I got into it or, you know, whether I sold anything or, um, you know, but I but I was there. So, you know, I, I, I was getting more and more interested in uh, in art. Why do you cite your father and your brother as being your biggest influences growing up? Well, you know, I think, you know, the, when the question is, um, you know, what mentors do you have or, or who did you kind of idolize? I mean, I, you know, I loved the movies and I, I knew a lot about, you know, various actors, but th there, there wasn't anybody who I aspired to follow. But I do think that with, with an impact on my life, my father uh, was an accountant. And for an insurance company, so you know you can't get much drier than that. And when I think about you know my career, which in the media business has largely been about you know numbers and data um, and analytics, um, he was a he was a, a spectacular singer. He was a, a very very fine tenor at a time when you couldn't make a living at that kind of thing. Um, you know you could be a, you know. A, a wedding singer or a church soloist and that's what he was so he kind of lived for Thursday night church rehearsals and Sunday morning church service when he could you know do this the solos and people always came up to me and you know adults would tell me how wonderful a singer my father was and he um he was in the Mendelssohn choir uh, just a very very fine tenor so there's a guy who had a very you know, I'm sure and people who knew him in the in the insurance company would probably have been very surprised to find that what he really lived for was this creative outlet. And and that's that's really my story. Um, and my brother, who 
uh, was also a very fine musician, did his, um, his uh, Bachelor of Music at U of T and is eight years older than me um, and was a very fine musician and was in a, a couple of bands that played downtown at the time. Um, and he became a music teacher and ended up uh, through much of his career living in smaller communities, never in Toronto, but in, in smaller communities in, um, in, on, in Southern Ontario. And I think about, you know, when I left school or finished school, what did I do? I became an art teacher in a very rural part of Canada as well. So I, that's those are the, the impacts and the influences on, on my life. Your very first job was delivering a newspaper. How did your paper route with the Telegram come about? I guess it's the kind of thing that, you know, kids did back then is, is have a, a paper route. And I remember there was a guy I knew kid from school who had the, the roots in my neighborhood and I don't know how it came to pass but he wanted to give it up and so he sold it to me <laughs> he really? sold me the root for, for five dollars yeah <laughs> I had to buy the business um <laughs> very entrepreneurial and, uh, I've never heard of that yeah. like I've heard there have been referral <laughs> fees if they can find someone to take the route that the company pays for, but I've never heard of anyone treating it like a franchise and selling it to you. I know, I know. Oh. And, and, uh, and, you know, there were a couple of lessons there um, that, you know, now that I think about it, because I would, um, you know, every day I'd go up to the corner up at Young Street and the, the papers would be dropped off and I'd deliver them. And in those days, the, the paper boy had to collect as well. And, you'd, you know, you'd go around from house to house and ring the doorbell and you'd have your little punch card or something. And hopefully people would be home and you'd, they'd pay you for however many weeks they owed. And then um, and sometimes they you really had to chase them down because they'd never be home or wouldn't answer the door. And then every Saturday I had to go up to the uh, the route manager's house and he would tell me what I owed. And I'd give him all the money I collected and he'd basically give me back, you know, after I paid for all the papers, he'd give me my money. And I never made any money. I mean, I, I would, I was, you know, working for five days a week or six days a week, I guess, because it was a Saturday paper. And, uh, you know, and I'd leave his house with like $7 and I could never figure it out. And, you know, one of the things you learn when you get into business is you have to know where the money is. You, it's the number, number one lesson I learned in my career is, particularly in running a business, is you have to watch the dollars. You have to know where the money is, uh, both for your clients and for yourself. And in the you know three years or so that I had that route, I never could figure out. I, I don't know whether I was being swindled or, or, or what, but I never made any money doing that route. But you also had a couple of other really interesting odd jobs. You were also working at a flower store. So you were picking up, I guess you were picking up extra ships during the holidays. Is that how it worked? It's exactly right. Because, um, you know, most businesses like that, on a typical day, they might have, you know, three or four parcels to deliver. Um, that which is not enough to have somebody come in and do that for them. They may even had a, a delivery service. But at, at times like Christmas and Mother's Day and Valentine's Day, Easter, um, when the orders would really soar. I mean, at Christmas, the whole store was filled with poinsettias. And uh, so I would, uh, yeah, I, I had, a, I, I really loved it. I'd go in and, um, you know, there'd be all these parcels. And I started out as a jumper on the truck and the jumper, meaning, you know, you sit beside the driver. 
the driver's got the map and the list of <clears throat> where to deliver to and you pull up and and you'd load the truck in order of delivery so the the mm. first the last ones to deliver are the first ones into the truck and the and the first ones you deliver are the last ones in the truck so you jump out and you grab one of these and and you have to get to the house at christmas um before you know the the cold hits the the plants inside the paper um so there'd be a lot of running and i found it kind of maybe it was my first sense of uh, competitiveness because i i just really took pride in getting these deliveries made as quickly as possible um I really loved it. And it was, uh, it was hard work. Um, and it was, you know, long hours. There were times during Christmas or Easter, um, when I might still be delivering flowers, I could be starting at, at nine in the morning or something and still working at seven or eight at night. And I really uh, thrived on it. I saw, I thought, saw it as a challenge. I liked it. I noticed that a lot of your part-time jobs didn't have you sitting still. Mm-hmm. Like it was always you show up at base, grab what you need, and then you're out on the town. You know, I'll tell you just something that uh, is is kind of funny. You know, uh, towards the end of my father's life, he said to me, uh, he looked at me one day, and he was a very old man by that point, and he looked at me and he said, uh, you know, you turned out a lot better than we thought you would. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I was uh, I when I was I was delivering papers, I was uh, delivering flowers. And then I, I after the the paper uh, business in high school, I delivered catalogs, you know, consumers distributing, which was a company that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, um, I remember that store. I mean, it sure, was just, you, sure. you just showed up. They maybe had a couple samples out front, but you went to the catalog, wrote the number down on the card and then kind of like the beer store. They wheeled out your television or your VCR. That's exactly right. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly back. it. And yeah. So, I mean, my parents um, were, were very kind to me in that you know, the, the catalogs would show up at the house and they'd be in the front hallway. And before I could deliver, get through all of them, the next ones would show up. So the front hall was always full of catalogs and my mother never complained. This was before Martha Stewart. So, you know, you didn't have a pristine (laughs) house all the time. And, uh, I would, uh, you know, I think this was when I was 16, I had a driver's license and I would, you know, put the catalogs in the car and drive to whatever route I had to deliver them and do that almost every day um for i don't know a year or something um always more catalogs to deliver uh when the catalog business you know was really in its prime and then um you know then i eventually on the flower side of things i eventually became the driver and i would i would i would i guess there was a a jumper sitting beside me and had to drive all over the city i became very knowledgeable about the city you know growing up in mount pleasant and lawrence i didn't really know too much about areas of city like you know, Cabbage Town or Riverdale or Parkdale or anything like that, but I got to really know a lot of the city and where all the hospitals were and the, the funeral homes and all those things, um, which didn't even good said when I eventually became a cab driver. So which is something yeah. you don't see nowadays because someone will get into an Uber or even a taxi and it's all about the GPS. The GPS tells them where to go. The G- They're just the pilot. They don't understand the neighborhood or know the neighborhood as well. Totally. And I've been in many of those things where I'm the I'm telling him how to get somewhere because, you know, he's using his uh, his uh, GPS. And I think I know a better a better route. Um, yeah. And so I, I, I and still today, I 
I, I know the city extremely well because of that experience. Why York University and why did you choose to study visual arts? I remember graduating from high school. And you know, you have to remember, I was born in 55. So I, I graduated in 73, which really was still part of the 60s, um, you know, that Woodstock generation. And I remember being shocked when I opened up the yearbook and picture after picture of the graduating students would say, so-and-so's off to study economics at U of T. So-and-so's, you know, going into pre-med. And I thought, <laughs> nobody told me. They, they, all these people had plans. I didn't have any plans, but um, I, I, was, I was very good at art and it was my top uh, subject in high school. And I wanted to go and study art, but I didn't really think about where that might take me. Um, if I had any kind of image, and I think this is something that I thought about in the early part of my, it, my university education was, you know, to become a starving artist, living in a garret somewhere, dying of consumption. That was my, that oh, was my goal, right? you know, to be the kind of, the, you know, the Van Gogh kind of uh, uh, character. I, I did not want to become a lawyer or a doctor or anything to do with an office. My father worked in an office for 45 years and I, I thought I couldn't stand to, to do that. So, um, so really um, that was my, that was the reason for me uh, uh, going into art. So were you going all the way up to York University from the Carlton area? Cause that's quite the commute. There's no, they, back then there was no subway that took you right to, to York University. That's right. So for the first two years I was at York, um, I was still living at home. And so I would uh, leave uh, my Mount Pleasant and Lawrence house and walk to the subway and take it up to York, York Mills. It went to York Mills. And then you would get out and you'd wait for a bus that would, a York bus, a school bus that would take you. So you'd get out of the subway and there'd be this lineup of like 80 people all waiting to, to get on the, the York bus. And you might not get onto the first one and you'd have to wait for the next one. It was cold and it was, uh, you know, there were many days when it was kind of dark, you know, in the winter waiting for that bus. And then I, after I moved downtown to Young and Carlton, uh, you're right. I would, I would get on the subway at Carlton and take it up to, um, I guess, York Mills and eventually up to Finch because the, the, the Shepherd and Finch stations eventually got built and again, take a bus from there to York. So it would take me, I don't know, an hour and a quarter, maybe at that time to, to get to and to school and then back home at the end of the day. Yeah, it was a lot of travel, a lot of sleeping on, uh, on subways. <laughs> Why did you follow that up with a bachelor of education from the university of Toronto? You know, I, I mentioned that I kind of had this vision of being a starving artist, but I think living on my own, and having to pay rent every month and, you know, feed myself. And the concept of, uh, of, of needing money, um, you know, really hit me. And um, I, I think that I started to think more about what am I going to do with this degree? And, uh, and, and where's it going to take me? And because it was a fine arts degree, it wasn't going to take me into commercial art, or I didn't think it would. And I frankly didn't know if I was good enough for doing anything along those lines. So um, my brother was a teacher, um, and I, I think that had some 
um, influence on me, and I, I started thinking about education. I always ask everyone what their first job was out of school, but you've got you've got like a story within a story here because you you actually took you actually can we say took a sabbatical after your first two years at York to yes. um, to paint work and travel. So where did that idea or that motivation come from? How did your parents respond to that? And what did you do? So uh, the good questions there. And I don't recall any serious discussions with my parents about taking a year off. I think it was common enough at that time. And uh, even today, people nowadays will take time off to travel around the world. But my horizons were a lot more limited. Um, but my idea was to take a year off school and work, find some jobs and work on my painting, which I did. Um, painted a lot in that year at home. I was still at home. It wasn't until the end of that year that I moved out. Um, and I, you know, you get this idea in your head and then of course the reality is much tougher. And I started getting jobs. And of course they were jobs that were dead end jobs and that I failed at completely. Um, I think one of the first jobs I had was selling um, theater tickets for what was called then the St. Lawrence Center. And, uh, you know, I answered an ad in the paper and this guy, you know, he really sold me on the, how, how well I could do. And of course I was abysmal at it. I would, you know, go drive to a, an area where there were offices and I'd walk in and get off the elevator and ask if I could sell tickets. And of course, uh, I think I sold one pair. Um, and I sold another pair to my aunt uh, and, and that was it. And so I, you know, after the, I don't know, they did it for six weeks or something. And, uh, and, and that's all I could do. So um, I then got a job uh, driving a taxi for Beck, Beck taxi. And a lot of taxi companies at that time, you know, you really had to be an experienced cab driver, but Beck, um, j you just needed a, a, a taxi license. And then, then they would, you know, give you a car. And I uh, had to go and get my chauffeur's license. And then I um, had to take the uh, a taxi training course, which was over a couple of days, uh, where you kind of learn how to be a taxi driver and and study the map of the city and learn how where the you know the rules of the road and all that all those things. But I would. Um, I was I was driving in the east end of the city. So around think of um kind of Woodbine and Queen. Um mm, familiar with or, that area. You know, that, yeah, that area, which is you know, the kind of in the beaches, but also all that area. Um and at late night. And I don't know, I have no memory of how I got down there or how I got home. I have a vague memory of taking a streetcar home late at night, but I was driving from like you know, seven in the evening till two in the morning. And I was, you know, 20 years old um, and, you know, driving around in a car in the middle of the night in areas that weren't very nice uh, by myself and pulling over and, and picking people up and uh, taking them somewhere. I don't know why my parents let me do it. I wouldn't let my kids do it, um, but it was a huge maturing experience because these kinds of jobs I had 
you know, by the time I finished um, my that year, I had a real sense that without an education, those were the kinds of jobs that were open to me where you have no power and you can be terminated very quickly and and there's no future. That was more of an education than I think I could have gotten in any kind of school at that point about, you know, real life lessons. Um, you know, I worked as a busboy and a waiter and then a waiter at a restaurant in the, in the Yorkville area of Toronto. And I was fired, um, because I, you know, I'd been on my feet for like five hours and it was like three o'clock in the afternoon and there's, there was still business and I'd been on my feet for, you know, all that time. And I just wanted to sit down. And at the end of the day, they told me not to bother coming back. There were probably things, you know, legislation and um, help for those kinds of people now that maybe didn't exist then, um, you know, in terms of fighting the the labor um, or fighting with the labor board or something. But, uh, you know, it was it was, uh, it was uh, uh, you know, a real education. I, I had a job. Um, again, answering an ad in the paper um, to work at a, a flyer company, a newspaper flyer in Unionville, which was when that was really farmland. Like I would, I got a car and would drive up there through farmland, past cows to Unionville to work the phones and try and sell them, sell people ads. And my job was to look in other papers um, like the Scarborough Mirror, and find ads, and call those people, and try and sell them on advertising in my paper, in my flyer. Um, and the first week I did really well, and then after that it just kind of went down and down and down to the point where I wasn't selling anymore. And they, you know, they said goodbye to me. So I had about four jobs at least in that year that where I, you know, didn't succeed. Um, and was happy to go back to school at the end of the year. I want to touch on your job as a taxi driver. Two other creative people, David Mamet and Larry David, both of them drove taxis early on. Yeah. And I, I'm just looking at that between your experience as a visual artist at the time, it's just like, what is it about creatives driving taxi cabs? Like what the attraction oh. is there? Because even David Mamet has said in an interview that if things weren't working out for him as a playwright when he was trying to get out of it, he had no problem going back and driving a taxi. That's as if it was like a, a calming thing for him. Yeah. And I think for, for, you know, my situation was different, but I, I, in that I was a student taking time off and, you know, trying to get jobs to, you know, to save up enough money so I could move out of my parents' house. Whereas I think there are a lot of people in the arts who, you know, they're in between gigs, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're uh, auditioning for roles that they don't get, or they're taking acting classes and they need a job. It's often, you know, a, a, a waiter or waitress job or a cab driving job or a truck driving job. But what they really want to do is, you know, is get an acting job. Um, and I think the world is full of those kinds of people. And it's interesting because, you know, you, you it, it, one of the things that I remember thinking is, and it's still with me today, that you need to respect people regardless of what they do. You, you don't know that person, you know, that person who serves you a cup of coffee uh, in a, you know, in a, in a, a, a little uh, diner, 
or somebody who picks you up in, the, in a cab. You don't know their life story. You don't know what they're dealing with and you don't know what their skills and their aspirations are, but everybody has them. So uh, I, again, that was a lesson for me in, in treating people well. No, I completely agree. When I have the chance to lecture in the college advertising program, my lecture is around networking. And I have this part in my lecture where I say to everyone, look to your left, now look to your right. And I said, there's a good chance you just saw your future boss. Letting people right. know that there's kind of like, yeah, sure, you're all on the same level. But after about three or four years in the business, you're going to find out who's going to take time to climb, who's going to stagnate, and who's going to go all the way. And you might be working with them. Mm -hmm. So if you're letting your guard down or not pulling your weight during group work, they're going to remember that when they're hiring a media supervisor. Absolutely. And, you know, something I've said to many people in our industry is it's a small industry. You're going to keep yes. running into the same people over and over. And they will either be working, you'll either be working for them or they'll be a client of yours or you'll be a client of theirs. So you you really have to have to remember how you treat people because you'll run into them again. We're going to take a quick break. Enjoying this episode? Of course you are, or you wouldn't have made it this far. Compliment your listening experience by subscribing to the Media People newsletter at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or at mediapeople.beehive.com. It's a mix of original and curated content designed to feed your curiosity while aiding in personal development. On top of more podcasts, we'll connect you with articles, interviews, and industry events. Subscribe at mediapeople.ca forward slash newsletter or mediapeople.beehive.com. You teased this earlier on, but after you got your Bachelor of Education, you went out to PEI to teach art. Tell us a bit about what that experience was like, because I have to imagine that the classroom experience was far different from what you had as a teenager in Toronto, where you said, you know, there were 30 plus kids in a classroom. It was during mm -hmm. the boomer generation. So what was it like out there? Well, it was a shock. Um, you know, I when I when I finished at York, I went to U of T and got my Bachelor of Education. And I started applying for, for um, art teaching jobs all over Canada. And I think I wrote to every school board, answered every ad that was posted in the paper at that time, um, to school boards in Northern Ontario or Labrador or, you know, uh, on, on Indigenous uh, reservations. Um, and I, the one job interview I got was from... Prince Edward Island. And it, when you talk to people, when you say to people Prince Edward Island, everybody thinks Charlottetown, but I I got the job uh, two hours west of Charlottetown. Now, Charlottetown, uh, PEI is not a big place. So two hours west of Charlottetown is like 12 hours north of Toronto in terms of difference. Um, mm, gotcha. It was, it was a very, very rural community, agricultural and fishing community um, where everyone is either related to each other or knows each other, grew up with each other and very hard to fit in. Um, and particularly when you're from a place from Toronto, like Toronto that, um, you know, nobody wants to, nobody thinks good of Toronto if they live in a, in a small place like that. It was a junior high school, grades uh, seven, eight, and nine. And I had, uh, there were 500 students in the, in the school and I had all of them for my art, art uh, classes. And um, and the, the 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 school the classes were divided up into uh, you know there were some some classes with very bright kids really these winner kids uh, kids who were interested 
kids who came in and wanted to listen to you and, and, and really have a good experience. And then there were kids who just were in just very difficult. Um, I remember in my first year, I had a grade seven class where there was a 17 year old boy. It was his fifth year in grade seven. Oh God. And I remember saying to one of the teachers who was a nun, uh, why is he still in grade in seven? And she and her answer was because he's never done anything to pass. And that was true that there were a lot of kids there who would, you know, they, they wouldn't show up at school until, you know, after um, agricultural season was over, farming was over, or, um, you know, they'd leave in the spring once fishing season started um, because they were helping their families. So you could stay in the same grade year after year. Um, that was, again, a, a huge eye-opener for me. It wasn't what I expected in going to teach at a, at a place like that. That My budget for the year, I had I was given a budget of $1,000. It might have been $1,100 for 500 students um, to, for, for art supplies. Um, so that caused me to get very creative about what you could do with pencils and paper. Jeez, <laughs> oh, I was going to say, yeah, that is very limiting. <laughs> very limiting. And, uh, I, yeah, so, you know, it was also a challenge because, you know, I, uh, my wife and I were married, um, in this third week of school. Um, I flew back to Toronto. We were married. We flew back to PEI. And Monday morning, I was back in class and she was sitting in a cabin thinking, what have I done? <laughs> okay, so let's talk about your formal foray into the media world. Okay, so how yes. did you find your first job at Ogilvy and Mather? After two years in PEI, we, my wife and I talked and decided that um, this was not something that we should be doing for the rest of our lives. And I'd also come to the decision that um, the, the observation that working in the public sector or in the education system, um, you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily rewarded uh, financially. If you can be a good teacher or a bad teacher, uh, you can be a very committed teacher. You could be somebody who just shows up and everybody gets paid the same. It's a very and good point. I had this kind of, I had this vague notion that what I wanted to do was to get into business where if I really applied myself and worked hard, I would, you know, make my fortune. And, but I didn't know anything beyond that. What business, what kind of business? Uh, I had no knowledge of, of, of how the world worked um, from, a, from a business perspective. And so I, um, I was really floundering in terms of, you know, what should I be doing? And I answered an ad. There was an ad in the paper, I think it was a two line ad. And it was something like, um, Advertising agency, media estimator, uh, university degree, uh, good with math, um, call this number. That was it. And I responded to it because I knew the term media, not how it, it is in, in the advertising world, but it's an art term. You know, uh, the medium is the message. The, the, the Marshall McLuhan. Art is, yeah, right. But, um, you know, that uh, um, media is an art term. And. So I called, it was a placement firm. Um, I had a couple of, I had an interview and had to do some aptitude tests and they sent me to Ogilvy and Mather where I was um, one of four people hired that day. Um, 
again, we, we all had to do aptitude tests and profile tests and, uh, and be interviewed by about eight or nine people. It was an exhausting afternoon. And I went home and told my aunt, my, my wife that I got the job and she said, doing what? I said, well, I'm not really sure. <laughs> it's something to do with ads, but I don't, I don't really know what. It had never occurred to me that when I watched TV and there were ads on it, that somehow advertisers were paying money to be there, to be in front of my eyeballs. And that's how the media made their money. I didn't, I, I knew nothing about that stuff. So, so anyway, I was, um, I was really surprised to find that I enjoyed working in an office, that the people at Ogilvy and Mather were charismatic and funny and interesting people after having been in Prince Edward Island for two years um, with the teachers at the school I worked at. Uh, this was really refreshing for me. And like my father, who'd worked 45 years in an office, there I was working in an office and finding I liked it. As a visual artist, were you coming into the industry thinking like, and you see this with a lot of uh, young people when they come into it as well. They they kind of conflate mm -hmm. media and creative and they think, oh, you know, brainstorms, storyboards, I'm going to be on set, art direction and things like that. But then you found out very quickly that, no, the media side of the business is, like you said, budgets, spreadsheets, dollars, yeah, so yeah. forth. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a couple of things. What, the first thing is I very, very quickly learned um, that what I was doing in the media department at Ogilvy Mather was something I I really actually liked. I, there was this other side of my brain that that liked connecting, you know, dots um, and liked adding up numbers and uh, working with budgets and eventually working with uh, you know television ratings and and understanding the 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 um, the the research technology behind those things. But I also I have to say I I I, I think that I doubted myself from an artistic perspective that while I was, you know, a, a good, I, I was good at drawing, you know, the, the, the term in the advertising world is, that is about people who are creative is creative. They're the creatives. And it's not that they can draw. It's that they can take a, um, a, a, a brief and create a selling proposition from that brief um, and develop uh, a, a sales pitch that we call an ad. And I didn't have those skills. I had drawing skills. What brought you to Chai Day Canada? After six years, I left Ogilvy and I got a job at Ted Bates um, as a media supervisor. And uh, one of the accounts I worked on was uh, Nissan, although it was then it was called Nissan. And I was only there for nine months. And in that time, um, I impressed the, the people I worked with and the clients. And um, Bates was part of the, the Backer Spielvogel empire. And they had two agencies in Canada, Ted Bates and Straight and Pearson Holman, I think was the name of the agency. And uh, they were merging them. The problem was that the other agency had the Hyundai account and they also had it in the States and they were going to have to resign Nissan. And so Nissan worked with Shiat Day, which was the uh, their agency in the States to, um, to come up to Canada and, work, and open an office in Canada. 
And I was invited by the account director who was assembling a team um, to be the, uh, the media director. And I remember going home telling my wife this once in a lifetime opportunity. I, was, I, I had six years experience and they wanted me to be the media director at this new agency which I'd never heard of Shia Day. I mean, it's a, everybody else in the industry, certainly on the creative and account management side, knew about Shia Day. It was famous. I'd never heard of him. Um, but it was, uh, it was just a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I was scared to death because I had no idea who they were. And I was, um, you know, a, a young father with uh, two kids and a mortgage. And I had many sleepless nights of... Uh, you know, um, what if I, what if I don't do well? What if I, what if I lose my job? What if I, what if I can't do it? You know, and um, I, I remember asking my daughter at the time. Um, you know, um, she was very young. She was like, I don't know, she's, I don't know, six or something, five. And I said to her that I had this opportunity to do this new job, but I didn't know if I should do it. And she said, well, I don't think you should, because what if that job is cl cleaning windows on a big, high, tall building? And what if you fall off? Yeah. What if I fall, what if I fall off? <laughs> that, that is quite the metaphor that she threw out there. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, so I, I, um, I accepted the job. Then I turned it down. Then I accepted it again. Then I turned it down. I mean, they must have thought I was just an incredible loser, but they kept coming after me I, to their credit. And uh, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity for sure. It made my career. I almost was too cautious, but it worked out very well. So even though you, you said your words, you started off terrified at accepting this position, clearly it gave you the confidence to move out on your own because you left Shia Day to go out on your own. And let's start first with, Parents and Company, what was the problem you were looking to solve? Like, what opportunity did you see in the market for yourself that you said, aha, I could capitalize on this? And where did you get mm -hmm. the strength? Where did you also get the strength to do it, given in your previous role, you, there was so much personal uncertainty around it? Well, there was still uncertainty here. It um, What happened was that um, uh, Jeffrey Roche was the first creative director at Shia Day, and he left after a year or two. And uh, started his own agency. And after a couple of years, he called me to, uh, to have lunch. And I thought he was going to say something like, you know, I'm, I've got this new this agency and it's doing really well. And I need a media department and I want you to come and be my media director. But that's not what he said. What he said was, you know, I can't I can't find anyone in the business who thinks like I think and who I can work with from a media perspective. And I think you should leave Shy Day and start your own company. And, and, and I've got clients who you could work on and you, and we can pitch business together. And I said, wow. I said, well, like, well, would I just be working? Could I work with other? He said, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I just need access to your brain. Those were his words. It, I'd never thought about running a business, my having my own business. It never occurred to me in my life, in my, it, you know, in my mind. Uh, how do you start a business? Um, and I, you know, I went back to my job at Shia Day, and then Jeffrey would call me, and and I'd think about it, and you know, I I 
do some research and then I'd keep working and months would go by. And again, to his credit, he kept calling me. I pick up the phone and there'd be this, David, <laughs> where are you? <laughs> um, and eventually it was, it was about a year until I finally decided to do it. And once I did, it kind of took off. And I realized um, that um, the, the, back to your question, what the opportunity was to apply experienced senior management to clients who were not getting that in the agencies or with the agencies they were involved with, where work was being channeled down to junior people. And here was a guy who had not, by that time had, I guess, 12 years experience uh, and was a media director with an award-winning agency um, who would actually do their work, do their do their media planning and, and execution. And that was a, a fairly compelling position in the market at that time. And when the article came out in the trade press, um, I got a, I got calls that day uh, from people who wanted to hire me. Um, so within a, I don't know, three, four months, I had about five clients. So uh, started working in my basement. And uh, after about five or six months, we were able to get our first office and start hiring a few people and learn how to do that. My wife uh, did all the admin work and payroll and had to learn about, you know, um, payroll taxes and EI and all those things. And, uh, and I, and I was the, the, the front for the uh, front man for the, the agency. Um, and, you know, we had that agency for several years and it grew every year. You look back and you wonder how these things happen. You guys were so successful that it was, it was ages, not even called Denso ages back then. It was just ages came in and purchased the agency. And so this is an interesting point in your career because you spent the last couple of years being your own boss, a lot of success you're acquired, which is what a lot of people look forward to, like that sort of exit. But you stayed on with the company. I don't know if that was part of the contract, but here you are at a company that you built from the ground up, took it to that next level. Someone comes in and buys it. And it's kind of like, if I can use this analogy, it's like you sell your dream house to someone else, but then you're still living in it or you're renting it out. I didn't enjoy it. Um, and, you know, I, I've talked to other people about this over the years and people will say things like, look, you know, the, the entrepreneur always leaves. They always leave. Um, you know, I, um, at the time, what was happening was there was a tremendous amount of consolidation in the industry um, and globalization was happening. And we were, um, you know, a, a smaller Canadian uh, media agency and we had um, global accounts on the Canadian side of things. Um, and, you know, suddenly decisions are being made in Germany or in London and the account leaves uh, because of a decision made somewhere else. Um, and, and it was a bit terrifying. So when we, when we were approached by Aegis, which had the Karat brand or Karat brand, um, they wanted to acquire us and, uh, we would become Karat Toronto. Um, and then they also acquired an agency named Stratagem in Montreal, and that became Karat Montreal. And then they eventually put the two of us together to become Karat Canada. And I did chafe. Um, I, there were, it was a different culture. And 
not a not a bad culture or a good culture, just different. And after a year, I gave them a year's notice. And you, you're right that there, you know, there was an earnout. It was a two year earnout, and um, so either one of us, either side, could give a year's notice. And so that's what I did after a year, so that I would be there for the next year for the earnout, and then I would leave. In fact, I ended up staying on for a while um, to help to consult with them. Um, but uh, eventually, you know, terminated every relationship with that and moved on. And you went back out on your own again and you founded or co-founded Asylum Think Group. So where did that come from? Let's start first with the name Asylum Think Group, because I think that's a great name. Well, I, that, that name, I remember when that name came to me, I was, I was mowing the lawn in, in the backyard and, uh, and I was thinking about names and I, I've been very taken with um, the name Asylum. David Geffen had a record company called Asylum. What I liked about it was it, this image or this notion of a place that could provide refuge for people who, you know, maybe were getting a little beaten up within the holding companies of the world and wanted more freedom to work, but also the the flip side of the of what asylum is all about that um that um you know for lack of better words it's 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 where at that at that time you know where i thought you know where, where crazy people go i guess i now you would say where people with mental health issues might go so it was because of the notion of the agency world being full of uh you know crazy people um that's where the name came from but the think group part of it uh, was the consulting aspect. And I saw asylum as a um, a place where senior uh, experienced people from other agencies, media directors who maybe didn't want to do what they were doing anymore, could within this group work as uh, work with 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 partners on their own assignments, their own projects. And, uh, and that's what we did. There were there were four of us. Um, two of them, um, you know, Janet Callahan and Terry Sheehy, were both very renowned media directors at uh, from J. Walter Thompson and um, and Leo Burnett. Um, and uh, then the fourth was uh, a fellow named Marty White, who was a very experienced um, media sales executive. So we had both media buying and media selling experience within that group. So that was the that was the idea. You get a phone call from from Bob Shropshire. He's Densu's president, and I believe he was a former colleague of yours at Ogilvy. He gives you a call yes. while you're out while while you're doing work with Asylum Think Group. What does he ask you to do? So, um, I guess we were in a, maybe our third year of Asylum, and Bob asked me. I knew Bob from uh, the, my first week at Ogilvy. I think he'd been he joined Ogilvy. I don't know six months before me or something. And he had um, become, um, he'd gone into account management and, and ended up as the president of Densu, which at that time was called DCC. Um, and he, he asked me if I would, as a project, uh, design for him what a media department could look like, what it would cost, what resources would they require, uh, what kind of people would they require, et cetera, how many people would there be, those things. And uh, the reason was because uh, DCC 
outsourced all of its media strategy and execution to a, a media agency. So I did that as a project and, uh, you know, costed out all everything and laid out an org chart. And as I did it, I became more and more interested in the idea that maybe the person at the head of that org chart could be me, that maybe it was time for me to go back into the agency world, but not as an owner, not as an entrepreneur, because it's a lot of pressure. Um, and I don't know, I wasn't ready for it, but, you know, I knew Bob, um, we were pretty good pals and, and still are. And, uh, and, and, but to, but to get to start something, to start this department at this agency. And that's kind of been a, a theme through my career is starting things, whether it was at, um, you know, Shiat Day or, uh, Asylum, um, or, uh, DCC, and then of course uh, with um, now with uh, Karen O'Neill. It's kind of like your role's been, I guess, the role of a general manager or a coach with an expansion professional sports team. <laughs> I, I'm, just um, trying, I'm trying to think, of this, not, you know, not, like as an analogy. I'm like, that's what it seems like because it's like you come in, you're running the show, but there really isn't a show yet. You know when there's going to be one or there's going to be a team, but it's up to you to put those pieces together before you can do anything else. Yeah, it's a good analogy. And what happens, you know, is is as time goes by, you be, you you learn and you become more confident because you know what situations may arise and how you are going to um, uh, manage those situations. Where you know, when I was when I had the opportunity with Shia Day, uh, you know, it I was terrified. I didn't know really where to start. Um, but after some years, I, I knew what I, I knew what I was doing. So when you did this at Dentsu, what did you do differently, say, from the previous times you had to build a team, a media team from the ground up? Well, um, you know, I was fortunate in that um, Bob was um, very open to uh, anything I wanted to do. Um, and of course, I had the template already in place from the consulting project. I knew what the the, the team should look like, and I knew what um, the resources were required. So I set about, um, you know, putting those people in place and putting the um, the the research elements, etc., in place, and also working with. Um, uh, there was another agency involved because um, uh, DCC or Dentsu shared the. Toyota account at that time with uh, Sachi, and so mm. there were there was a media team over there. So so we had to work with them as well. Um, but you know, I but by this time I knew how to work with creative people. I knew, uh, it, and I think this is something that you know maybe I haven't really touched on enough, but I think is very important is because of my art background. Um, you know, there are people in the advertising world who are really you know, one, one side of the brain or another side of the brain. And, um, I think if I, if there's anything that really helped me, um, was to be both sides and to be able to work with creative people, feed off them, help them, um, give them, I give them thinking that maybe they hadn't thought of and work as a team. And, uh, so at Dentsu working with those creative people in-house, um, you know, and and to be able to walk into a client's uh, office as part of the team, as opposed to a department, um, really, really led to success. Okay, so let's bring things full circle about 
the idea for Kearns O'Neill and where it came from. And I want to start by saying a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned that one of the things you enjoyed about taking the role on a Dentsu was, is that like it wasn't an entrepreneurial venture. So you didn't have all of those extra stresses on top of you and that you didn't want that at this time. So what made you want to embrace those again? Because I think this is your third company that you've started. Yes, yes. And 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 it's a really good question because, um, you know, I before Karen's O'Neill, I probably told many people that if I was to ever start another company, I would want a partner because it can be very lonely. You know, when things things always look worse in the middle of the night, when you wake up and you something's on your mind and you're thinking about, you know, a, an account that is going to go to review or a senior person who has resigned or, you know, an account you pitched and you didn't get, it always looks terrible in the night. And, uh, and then you wake up in the morning and you have to solve that by yourself. If you have a partner, somebody who you can bounce things off of, somebody who can stabilize you when you're, um, when you're worrying about things, someone you can help, um, just having a partner also, you can, it can help you make, be the strong one on occasion. Um, it brings everything, it brings good things out. So when I had the opportunity with Karen O'Neill, um, it was about partnership. And what happened was uh, when I, I, I had resigned from, uh, from Dentsu, um, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I gave a long, long uh, lead before leaving, like several months. And, but the word got out that I was, Going to be leaving and a very good friend of mine who i know from um ogilvy and mather uh ann myers referred sherry o'neill to me uh sherry had um had gone through some real success in other areas of the business but at the moment was not working and thought there might be an opportunity for her at dentsu so she called me and we got together to have a coffee and uh and we quickly morphed from talking about Dentsu to talking about the industry and the things that excited us, the, the kinds of projects and challenges we, we liked. And by the end of it, um, and of course the frustrations in the industry, and by the end of our coffee um, had, one of us said to the other, maybe we should do something together. We'd never met. We'd never met. We, we didn't know each other. Um, we'd never worked together. And, uh, and yet, after one conversation, we were saying, maybe we should work together. Maybe we should do something. Um, and what Sherry remembers is that I, you know, afterwards, I went back to my desk and I sent her an email saying something like, that's the most excited I've, most exciting conversation I've had, you know, in years or something. Um, and of course I was still at Dentsu, so I still was working on accounts there. But Sherry, like Jeffrey Roche years earlier, started, you know, um, sending me articles, uh, doing analyses, um, you know, uh, establishing some budgets, how we might go to market. And after several months, we we did. And uh, um, you know, we, uh, it was, we just really kind of, um, I believe came to a point where we saw much like earlier for me that 
that we saw a, a similar opportunity that again, a, a senior managed media agency with senior people actively working on client accounts um, was a, a, a hole in the market that we thought we could fill. And that's, uh, that's, that's how we, uh, we, we launched. Compared day one of Karen's O'Neill with what the agency looks like today. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, um, when you start a company, you know, you, you don't really know, uh, are we going to have an office? Are we going to work from home? Um, you know, what clients will we have and what will our revenue be? And so we tended to be a little cautious. Um, initially we're working from home and maybe, you know, got a little bit of shared space here and there from people we knew. It was Sherry, myself, and, um, a young lady named Trish, who was our coordinator. And, uh, that, so it was the three of us and, Today at the company is worth is uh, is about fifty people, um, and we have a, a a president in place who we recruited uh, a couple of years ago um, and allowed me to step back. You know, at the time when Sherry and I started the company again twelve years ago, we said, "Well, you know, we'll need a a digital manager. You know, we'll we'll need a, a an internet person." Um, well, now you know, 60 or 70% of our business is digital. Um, there are things people are doing in this office that I'm not quite sure what they do because <laughs> it's, it's things have really changed um, in, in the world. But yeah, it was, a, it was the right time for us to do it. And uh, it's been really successful. So when do you know that it's time for you to take a step back? Like, are you still having fun or is there something else that you want to, uh, you want to do with your life? Well, there's something, yeah, more other things I want to do with my life. Um, I, I, I worked for two years as a teacher and then what am I, is it 46 years, uh, 42 years, I guess, um, in the advertising industry. Um, and it was time. I mean, Sherry and I, almost from the time we started the agency, had talked about what the future would be and, you know, what our exit strategy might be. And that was something else I learned over my career. You know, when I, when I started David Cairns and company, I don't think I even knew the, the phrase exit strategy. Um, and I would, you know, that would be my biggest piece of advice. I think to anybody starting a company is when you start a company, you have to think about how you're going to get out of the company. And you have to know that when you start, you can't be thinking about that, you know, 10 years later. So we had talked about, um, you know, when that might be. And, you know, um, it was a couple of years ago, about three years ago, when we sat, the two of us sat down and I said, okay, I think I'm ready. And uh, Sherry said, yeah, she's almost there too. And we decided to, that we would um, look at a staged uh, um, approach to what you might call retirement and that we would need um, the next generation in leadership um, and make sure that person or people would be in place well before uh, either one of us step back. And so Devin McDonald joined us, uh, I guess about two years ago now, a good two years. Um, 
And I stepped back in April of last year. So he was in place several months um, before I stepped back and it was pretty seamless. And in terms of how I feel, uh, great. I, I don't think about the industry that much. And I certainly don't think about the daily issues that the, um, the agency might be facing. Um, I do think more in terms of, you know, as I said, the, the larger kind of financial performance and any kind of, um, you know, large risks or liabilities we might be facing and, and, you know, how do we get um, in front of those? But I don't wake up in the morning wishing that I was still in the office. Do you dedicate a bit more time towards painting? Yes, I, I paint most days. Um, I haven't for the last uh, month or so with the holidays, um, but uh, my, my, my life in 2023 was, uh, was cycling, traveling, and painting. And I uh, was able to get into uh, uh, an art fair in, um, in Riverdale. Um, I also um, joined a couple of artists groups. Um, we got some showings various places and have made a lot of connections with, with people who I, I wouldn't have met otherwise. So, um, and learning about, you know, the, the, the concept of the idea of painting. I always say to people that, you know, if you, if you're a musician, you play guitar, you know, you take your guitar out of the, out of its case and you play. And then you finish and you put the guitar away and it and it goes in the closet and that's it. But with art, it goes up against the wall and then another one leans up against it and against it. And your house can become full yeah. of, of art. You, you, you have to, you really do need to think about um, what is your strategy for getting your art into the hands of other people, because otherwise you'll have, you need to buy a bigger house. <laughs> David, before we close, I just want to let our audience know that I did extend an invite to Sherry O'Neill to participate in a separate podcast. She declined at this time, but we do have a standing invite with her and we hope to have her on. David, are you ready for rapid fire questions? Sure. The campaign you are most proud of? I can't tell you. I, I, I've worked on hundreds and they, you know, they, they get dim in, in my memory. Um, but I, if the question was, you know, the, the things that I'm most important of or most uh, most fulfilled by, um, you know, is working with clients who tell you that they, you know, had never imagined that, you know, media work could be as great um, as what you're delivering or, you know, creative partners who talk about how wonderful it is to work with you those kinds of things have really um have, have really made me feel very good about uh, you know uh, the, the work i've done and you know hiring junior people hiring people out of school and seeing them giving them opportunities you know i i think about in the agency uh karen's o'neill the jobs we've created over the last 12 years that and, and those people we've hired who either are still with us or have moved on to other places. I, I, I'm very proud of that. Your favorite movie. Uh, again, I, I hate to tell you that I can't think of one, but I, I will tell you several that I, if favorite means, you know, watching over and over and over again, I, 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 I love the uh, bullet 
and uh, Vertigo, which I was actually just watching a couple of nights ago. I, I PVR'd it. Um, the Godfather, both one and two. Also, um, Anatomy of a Murder, which is a, uh, an Otto Preminger film from the late 50s with James Stewart and Ben Gazzara, Lee Remick, and uh, love that film. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. I've watched many, many times. I love the, the message in that film of, uh, you know, the importance, the impact that one life can have. Um, it, it really resonates with me. I love that you've got Bullet in there. The immediately the, the poster comes up where it says it's got Steve McQueen's silhouette. There are good cops, there are bad cops, and then there's Bullet. Yeah, right. Oh, there's just something about chase scenes from like because I, I I like that film, the chase scene in the original Gone in sixty seconds, where I find that chase scenes are perversed with special effects nowadays, where everything had to be filmed in camera. And there's one scene I don't know. You've seen it, and I don't know if they don't really talk about this too much, but because there's not really a lot of coverage on Bullet. But there's a scene where he comes around the bend, and he actually tank slaps the car. Crashes into a car. It, it crashes into a car, and there's a bit of a cut there. And yep. apparently, they had to cut it out, and then also pay the guy because they wrecked the guy's car. Right. And I just just knowing that. No one really seemed to pay for any permits in San Francisco. They just set up the cameras and said, go. And that's what they did with Gone in 60 Seconds, too. They would clear the crowds out, car would come flying down, and then they would yell cut, and everyone would fly off to the next place. And they'd try to stay ahead of the police because they weren't weren't sure if yeah. they were going to be called. So I'm glad that you have Bullet in there. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, one of the differences between the way the films were made, you know, a number of years ago and the way they're made now is they can, you know, people died. You know, people yeah. were people were maimed and injured. Stunt men, um, stunt and stunt women were, you know, um, sometimes killed. And so they can make films now with, um, you know, digitally and with all kinds of um, of effects um, that that that's that you know is much safer. But it never seems quite lifelike. Not yet, anyway. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Assuming it could be someone who's no longer around, um, I uh, maybe someone like James Stewart. You know, I think about what people are, what 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 makes them tick, and when I think about James Stewart and the, the roles he played and the per, the person he seemed to be in real life, you know, somebody who stands up for his beliefs, um, looks after his family, cares about others, a bit of a loner. Uh, which I certainly am, um, sometimes wears his emotions on his sleeve. Um, you know, you maybe slow to anger, but can really lose it, which I can do. I, I, my temper can sometimes get the best of me. Um, somebody who says, you know, does what he says he's going to do and, and is a nice guy, not necessarily a cool guy, but a nice guy. My follow-up, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? That's a great question. And actually that's a, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to kind of get to the, think of that something right away. But I, um, in the early seventies, there was a movie made by Lindsay Anderson with Malcolm McDowell, uh, not about the advertising industry at all, but the title is Oh Lucky Man. And I, that's what I think I am. Your favorite book. Well, you know, you 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 touched earlier on all the the stuff I read when I was a kid, and uh, I I I do have a thought on kind of favorite author. Let's say um, I do I do like noir. Um, you know, not necessarily mysteries, but noir. 
and uh, and I've read a lot of like Jim Thompson and um, you know um, uh, people like uh, Patricia Highsmith. Um, but I my favorite is probably Philip Ch- uh, sorry uh, Raymond Chandler who uh, you know created the character Philip Marlowe and in books like The Big Sleep and Farewell My Lovely. So that would be that that would be my answer there. I I love the writing style. Um, I love the character. Um, you know very analytical, um, slow to action, more of a thinker and honest. Your favorite song. So I have, you know, very eclectic tastes. I'm not necessarily an expert in anything, but I, I love jazz and I love big band. And, you know, when I was going to university, I was listening to a big band. I was listening to Harry James and Benny Goodman and Sarah Vaughn and Ella Fitzgerald when I was, you know, 22, 23 years old. Um, which kind of eyebrows were raised and people heard the kind of stuff I was listening to, but I don't necessarily have a favorite song, but I do have a song that, um, that again, resonates for me. And it's a song called for a dancer by Jackson Brown. So this is about a 50 year old or more song and for a dancer, he wrote as a eulogy to a friend of his who had died. And, um, and it, 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 it puts the notion of, of dancing into life, that we're all dancing through life. And, um, you know, that while we're not, we're not alone in life, but in the end we are. Um, and the words are, do the steps that you've been shown by everyone you've ever known until the dance becomes your very own, no matter how close to yours, another steps have grown in the end, there is one dance you'll do alone. And uh, I think that's a very powerful, powerful image. Best advice you have ever received? I I didn't have to think long about this. When I was uh, really struggling to think about uh, when I should, if I should join Shia Day and, you know, taking the job and then not taking the job back and forth and back and forth. I asked my former boss at Ogilvy, whose name was uh, Nazarene Medhani, what, what I should do. And she said, David, do it. Think of the experience you'll get. If it doesn't work out, you'll get another job like that. Like just, just and I think she might have even snapped her fingers, like that. It was really empowering to hear the confidence in her voice that, you know, because there I was thinking about, oh, I'll never get another job. And so, and she was right. So she was, it was great, great advice. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I'll answer that a couple of ways. The first is to say that I, I probably would be a painter, um, which as I mentioned, that is what I spend a lot of my time doing. Um, I do have a need to be creative and all through my career, I found ways to be creative. Um, I love the idea of creating something that didn't exist before that, you know, in this entire history of the world, that doodle you do on a page has never existed. Um, Never been created by anybody. Um, So I really enjoy creating art. I, I enjoy looking at my work. I continually see new things in it, but I doubt that I make a living out of it. Very, very few people do. So if I wasn't in media, I might be doing that, but you wouldn't be talking to me because I wouldn't be able to afford (laughs) a landline (laughs) or a computer or something. Um, But my final thought is, is, uh, is 
that one of the things I've learned over my career is that um, the world needs all kinds of people. Everybody contributes. Everybody, it's like a, it's like a football team. You know, there's a quarterback and there, there's a an end and there's a center and they all play a role. And you can't have a team without all those people doing things. Um, and it's the same in in society where we need teachers and we need insurance agents and we need barbers and we need uh, homemakers and we need entertainers. Um, and if you're lucky, you you find the thing that you were meant to do something that stimulates you, um, that makes a contribution to your community and, and supports you and your family. And I was, the reason I said that I would call my, the movie, Oh Lucky Man, is I was lucky. I, I answered an ad that took me into a career that I knew nothing about, didn't know, even know it existed. And I prospered in it. Um, and, you know, my bad early experiences um, in the year I took off school uh, really taught me to be grateful for that. David, this has been a fantastic chat. Thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed it completely. Thank you. Thank you for your time. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca, your favorite podcast platform, or youtube.com slash at mediapeoplepodcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.